Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Warm greetings from Northwest Germany. My name is Dong Wang, and I'm the host for today's interview with Professor Jiang Fitzgerald about his new book, Cadre Country, How China Became the Chinese Communist Party, published by the University of New South Wales Press in Sydney, Australia in 2022. In my view, this book sets a new research agenda and should be read by all the people who care about our world as well as the future. Jiang, we first met at the University of Vienna for an academic conference nearly 20 years ago while you were working at Le Trobe University. Now I was working at Gordon College on the North Shore of Boston. But for our audience, I wonder if you just say a few words about yourself. Thank you, Jiang. Thank you, Dong. I'm delighted to have an opportunity to speak with you and, and your audience. Yes, Vienna seems like only yesterday. You know, city of mystery, as they say. I regret my own story is not that mysterious. I was born in bright and sunny Sydney town in Australia in an Irish Catholic enclave uh, back in the 1950s and uh, grew up happily in that space. So I had a traumatic childhood in any sense. But I had the opportunity to study at Sydney University, then at the Australian National University under Professor Wang Gangwu, who's the Duen, of course, of international overseas Chinese studies as well as uh, early imperial history. And then uh, in between times to study in China, in Nanjing and in, in Taiwan in the late 70s and early 80s. And then I uh, was fortunate to secure a Fulbright postdoc to the United States, where I spent some time at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and fell in love with the Midwest, really, in the, in the United States. Given that I had so many advantages, um, I, I had opportunities as well to go out and teach and share some of what I'd learned with students. So I spent 20 odd years in Australian higher education, teaching Chinese history and politics. And then a few things changed. One was that the Australian demographics were changing massive. There was a much larger immigration intake from the countries of Asia and increasingly from Latin America. And there were issues around Australia's past that needed to be dealt with in public, particularly racism, historical racism, and I think they needed to be addressed. And I helped to set up a, a sort of research, sort of like a research laboratory, researching and telling the stories of Chinese Australians in history and now to really to welcome new generations of immigrants from China and Southeast Asia of Chinese descent, as well, as well as other Asian Australian immigrants. And that was really quite impactful. And I enjoyed that very much. We, we were involved in exhibitions that toured the world and toured Australia, publications, postgraduate programs, scholarships, some of them supported by the Jiang Jingguo Foundation, for which I shall be forever grateful. And then it, it really at the end of that spell, I was given an opportunity to work with the Ford Foundation in China, which is a social justice philanthropy committed to higher education, to education generally, and to social justice, and spent a really most exciting, fruitful five years in Beijing, running the Ford Foundation offices there from 28 to 2013, and then came back to work in philanthropy, of all things. And so I sort of reinvented myself in the philanthropy space, but particularly looking at diaspora philanthropy and drawing on some of that early study under Professor Wang Gangwu around Chinese-Australian, Chinese diaspora communities, the way in which diasporas work and relate to their homelands and their new lands and, and so on. I became quite intrigued uh, by all that. So this book, in a way, is, is a little bit different from what I've been up to in recent times. It was more like an opportunity to reflect on what I'd learned over a long period of time 
about how China works. I mean, China has become such a, an important player, a great country, a powerful country, a wealthy country, and important to everybody, particularly to people in the region I live in, the Indo-Pacific, but of course, the United States and Europe increasingly as well, as well as to Africa and Latin America. I mean, where isn't China important now? It struck me that some of the public conversation I was hearing around China in Australia was relatively ill-informed, and it seemed to me I should perhaps step out of the ivory tower and write a book for a general public, drawing on research and, and stories and statistical data, but pitching a story that a general public could understand about how China works and why we need to understand how it works and what the implications are for relating with China, given that it is, yes, a Leninist Communist Party state. Indeed, Jiang. You know the DRC and the Chinese Communist Party, CCP inside out. I read your sharp, well-researched book with great admiration and really appreciate today's opportunity to discuss it with you. Given the recent changes in public opinion across the world, readers may wonder how best to deal with the CCP. How would you answer them? Well, I wouldn't answer with any certainty, Dong. My view is my own, but I do think first be under no illusion about who it is that you're working with. There are the people of China, the vibrant, intelligent, fabulous people of China, and then there's the Communist Party. Actually, you're dealing with the Communist Party, not the people of China, when, when you deal with, with China as a state. And the second is foreigners really shouldn't expect to change China. I mean, China is a dynamic country. It will change. It always has changed, but it's really not up to foreigners to do that. And, and nor do they have any hope in hell of doing it if they try. And so I, I guess the, the third thing I'd say is be aware of who you are, what your principles and your values are. Where are you prepared to draw the line? What will you compromise and will you not in dealing with this behemoth Leninist state? That's a question many Australians have had to ask over the last 10 years. Perhaps Australia was a little ahead of some other countries in this respect because it's very heavily dependent on China for trade and investment. And relations were exceptionally good, meaning expectations on both sides were high, exceptionally high. I, I would say they were unrealistically high. And it's been time to recalibrate some of those expectations, not to damage the relationship, but to have more realistic expectations for each side to know who they're dealing with, be true to themselves. Don't imagine you're going to change the other side. Come to a modus vivendi, vivendi sorry, that will enable you to work productively and fruitfully together while acknowledging what are really important differences between the way a communist party state works and a liberal democracy does. Yeah, I do agree. The 15 chapters of your new book reveal the world of the CCP and the way it rules. Your judgment is fair, honest, and brave with both historical depths and up-to-date contemporary knowledge, straddling politics, geopolitics, history, culture, and geoculture. I wonder what inspired you to have shaped the ideas and structure your prose, which I find engaging, accessible, and penetrating? Thank you, Dong. So the book is designed for general readership, let me say. As I said, I've been living in an ivory tower for some time, and when I went to work with the Ford Foundation, I found that people actually communicate in a very different kind of way. If you really want to get a message across, it has to be plain and simple, strategic in a way. I mean, what is the message I wanted to convey? That China is a, you know, a rich, a diverse, a powerful country with an extraordinary history and a set of institutions that others need to understand. Well, I could set it out in tables and charts and nobody would read it. So I thought I'd tell it through stories, peppered with a few statistics here and there 
to bear out some of the claims that I make. It's also contestable. I, I'm mounting an argument, really, and people are welcome to come in and say, no, you're wrong. Well, let's go for it. I, I think it's an argument that we need to have about how is it that China has come to look so much like the party that runs it. It's not anymore as if there's a party running an authoritarian state. Rather, the, the state itself is being swallowed up by the party, and China's coming to look awfully like the Communist Party and its leadership, to the exclusion of ordinary people who risk being left out of the story, not just outside China, but inside China. Look, it, it would probably be presumptuous of me to say this, but I do try to tell the story from the inside. I call on people I know or met or things that they've written and set out their critique of China. It's not mine. I mean, I put it all together in a particular way. But people are most welcome to knock it down if they wish, and they are welcome in the open debate. But I do think we need to be fairly frank and straightforward, not waste words. Tell it like it is. Thank you, Jiang. On page 36, you wrote, quote, The communists systematically eliminated members of the old elite associated with the existing social order and made a privileged elite of their own cadres, end quote. It is true that a gentry class of degree holders or scholar officials had been the backbone of pre-Mao China for over two millennia. Could you explain who the cadres of the PRC are? How do they form an elite class as power holders? Roughly how many PRC nationals can be considered cadres? What is their approximate percentage in the 1.3 billion population in contemporary China? And also, how does their hierarchical totem look like, which privileges this ruling class nowadays? Good questions, Dong. I, I do spend a couple of chapters looking at the old imperial system and, and, and how imperial officials were selected and examined and whether or not that was a meritocratic system and so on. So you're right. I do find a connection between the old imperial system of scholar officials and contemporary cadres. But I'm not suggesting that today's cadres are yesterday's scholar officials. No, not at all, really. Very, very different systems are in place. We need to bear this in mind. There was something like 20,000 official imperial officials, by official numbers in late Qing, 20,000 governing a population of around 400 million. Now there are more like 40 million cadres. You know, the, the scale is just incommensurable. And what where, uh, say, a scholar official, you know, a county head who was the official closest to the people, the Qinmin, Zhuguan, as they say, oversaw a population of perhaps, I don't know, three to 500,000 people in a typical county in, in the late Qing, they were aided in that by local associations, by patriarchal, you know, heads of families and what have you. They didn't have many, you know, officials penetrating every village and securing, you know, the compliance of local communities. That's not the case now. I mean, basically, there's a cadre in every village, more or less. And there's, you know, tens and tens of thousands of those villages. Um, so the estimates of cadres are somewhere between 40 to 47 million overall. That uh, People debate that around what, exactly what a definition of a cadre is. Of those, about, say, 20 million would be on full state benefits, and the rest often have themselves, you know, they're in social enterprises or working elsewhere where they need to generate the income that they earn. But there are about 20 million who are in, you know, official positions where the income comes through state state revenue. 
And of those, maybe, I don't know, um, uh, perhaps six to seven million hold core positions in party and state agencies. That's about the scale of it. Now compare that to 20,000 officials who ran the whole empire, and we're talking very different game. Um, what's more, I mean, under the old empire, officials were held in very, very high esteem. You know, if, if the magistrate's coming by in his palanquin, you know, everybody had to duck out of the way, and the magistrate di dressed differently, was subject to different law codes and so on. You know, if, if a cadre today tried to sort of wear, wear too many Rolex watches or tried to distinguish him or herself from the local people, they'd be furious. There's an insistence that the cadre should, in some sense, manifest equality, if not actually occupy an equal position with, with, with common people. So there's an ethic of equality uh, of, of civic engagement, even if it's not practised, or where is it practised perfectly? That said, I do try to mount the argument. This gets a bit more complicated. I'm not comparing today's cadres to past imperial officials, but I am comparing the two systems in this set. The cadres today and officials then governed so that ordinary people wouldn't govern, if you see what I mean. It's a caste of people who are selected to ensure that local communities can't really govern themselves, at least above the level of the village. And so that, as, as many people point out, you know, there are sort of five echelon levels of the state from the central to the provincial to the prefectural to the city and county and to the to the township and so on cadres at some of those higher levels would never really meet ordinary citizens i mean it's not in their business to go out and meet ordinary citizens it's the grassroots cadres those who are at the bottom of that pyramid the fifth and possibly the fourth rank who are working daily with ordinary people they have a tough life i mean their lives you know, particularly during COVID, for example, we can see, you know, it's not easy being a grassroots card. You know, some are jumping out of buildings. Others have gone into, a, you know, sort of mental asylum. Um, they have a, a, enormous problems. So the idea that they're all privileged and, and living the life, you know, the life of Riley, so to speak, is, is not all that accurate. It's, it's simply not accurate when it comes to the lower levels. But at the higher levels, though, it, it is. And there they bear a great deal of responsibility and also have opportunities, enormous opportunities for wealth, wealth creation or wealth aggregation often through their own families. But, but I guess I'm saying what the, the, the similarity is not between the cadres and the imperial officials, but between the systems of government, which set up a sort of elite vanguard in the case of the Communist Party, or an elite meritocratic class of scholar officials in the case of imperial China, to keep everybody else out of the business of government above the level of the village or the district in a city where people, you know, do by rights have a say in, in, in how they're managed. I'm not sure that I answered all your questions there, but um, that's basically the argument of the book. I have a related question, John. How does PRC's cadre system relate to its public service system? As we know, many, many young Chinese nationals take the national public service exams each year, which are so highly competitive. So could you help us understand the correlation between these two systems? Yes, Dong. So this is a highly dynamic situation here between the cadres who are in sort of management roles, responsible roles, and public servants, who to date don't occupy you know, official positions who are responsible to a higher cadre. Rather, they do the work cadres assigned to them. It's true that examinations for the Gongyuan, the public officials, are very, very competitive. Let's let's face it, they are in the party too. If you want to get up, make your way up through the party system, through the party schools, 
you have to do pretty well in exams as well as in a whole lot of other things. So exams really count. China's like a great big school, you know, organised around sort of teacher-pupil relations in which people owe their obligations to their teachers all the way up to Xi Jinping. Oh, Xi Jinping's name, of course, Xi, you know, it means learn, doesn't it? The learning and teaching and examination are really hardwired into China as a historical society. That goes back to times long ago, uh, as you know. But of course, there weren't public servants in China until really very recently, during Mao's day or Deng Xiaoping's time. No, I mean, if you're an official, you're a a cadre or somebody working under a cadre. So the introduction of a sort of a civil servant law in 19... And it was it 2005, you know, it was a significant development. And at that time, people thought this new category of public servants would gradually displace or develop alongside a sort of the cadre corps as a professional civil service. Uh, but that, that didn't really happen uh, for a variety of reasons. At, at that time, as I recall, the, the new bureau was created to manage public service officials, but they've all been drawn back into the organization department, now the organization bureau, Og Bureau in the old Russian model. And so the organization department of the party is still overseeing all responsible positions. I mean, at various levels, the central one does, you know, the top ones, and then those as they make their way down the five layers of the hierarchy are responsible for each. So that we could see, in fact, we should see a growth of a public service ethic and a professional public service in China. But that's not where China's at right now. It's a dynamic situation. Uh, it's been moving in the, that direction in fits and starts. And at the moment, under Xi Jinping's administration, it's moving more back in the direction of the loyal cadre rather than professional civil servant whose duty is, is towards the public rather than towards the party. Thank you so much, Zhang. As we know, Tencent is a major private enterprise that also runs WeChat, a government-authorized social messaging platform. In fact, the only one available to ordinary Chinese, I think. If you care to have a look at its Tencent News, it abounds in news, anecdotes, and stories about President Xi each and every single day of the year. This fact echoes what you wrote on page 53 as a European import, quote, a century on, the Chinese Communist Party is undisputedly Chinese because it has shaped the country in its own image and absorbed China into itself. To the party, Zhongguo has come to mean not China, but to the Chinese Communist Party, end quote. Could you elaborate further on what you meant that the CCP owns China? So words matter, Dong, as you know, in Chinese and every other language, but I think perhaps more so in Chinese to some degree. Uh, and when I ask the question, who owns China? And by that, I mean the word China. You know, I have a devoted chapter to this, the way in which the word China is used. I remember uh, myself, you know, as an older adult, only realising that the word China cannot be used by ordinary people in China to name something, whether it's a firm or, you know, a little club. or They can't even use the name of their town or city or province as a rule to name something they want to set up. So because the word China, Zhongguo, is codified in law as belonging to the state and you need to register. Everybody needs to register names if they want to be officially um, acknowledged at law. But none but a central state or party organisation 
or firm can use the word China. I mean, it's excluded from the private sector, really. Now, there are some exceptions where what was once a state firm has become a private one and retained its name. But on the whole, it's really not permissible. So to me, that was a revelation when I discovered that the word China was actually owned by the Communist Party, the Central Committee, actually, that the highest levels of it, nobody else could use it. Started looking at other places and found it's true of Shanghai, it's true of Jiangsu and what have you. Pretty well, every firm I could find or organisation I could find with a place name in its title belonged to the state. So what this was telling me is the state owns the territorial architecture of the country. And that territorial architecture mirrors not just the traditional structure of provinces and counties and so on, but the party itself, the way it's structured territorially around and through those local government agencies. And then in turn, that the hierarchical structure of any party organisation is ranked as if it were at the county level or the city. So you can be running a great big firm in in, in central Beijing. In fact, in New York, on behalf of an office in Beijing, and you'll be ranked like at the provincial or county or whatever level, which is, you know, the sort of the 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 bu, whatever. And these, the ranking um, of the territorial state matches precisely the ranking of the party through all other institutions, the party itself uh, and all state-owned state-owned firms, even universities, you know, positions are ranked, uh, their salaries and benefits accordingly, uh, sort of measured accordingly, um, according to the standard ranking of the territorial system and, and the bureaus uh, by which it's, you know, around which it's, it, it's organised. Um, so I don't mean to entirely say the party owns everything. I mean, there's another sense in which it, it does because private property rights are very weak in China, the land belongs to the state and the state belongs to the party, so the party belongs to the land. But there's a third sense, which I don't dwell on closely in the book, but I think, you know, I'd like to throw this to you, Doc. It's often struck me that the word for democracy used by the Chinese Communist Party is the one which makes a claim on ownership. It's minzhu. It's not minchuan. The idea of minzhu as democracy is not the word that was used by many Democrats in China who use Minchuan, like Sun Yat-sen and the Nationalists. Minchuan Jui, democracy for the Nationalists, means the principle of people's rights. Minchu Jui means the people's ownership, or mastership. And this goes back to the idea that owning territory, being a master of territory, and, and, and being a master of an institution are the same thing. You know, linking territory and ownership to power. And it seems to me that's common to the Soviet Communist Party. It's common to the Chinese Communist Party. It's embedded in the language that the very word for democracy has, has in a sense, a sense of ownership or mastery rather than of rights and of participation and, and so on. Perhaps you can correct me on that. I, I didn't venture to make that claim in the book, but it's often struck me as an important observation. Yang, I think you are spot on. Um, speaking of these critical terms such as um, people, the people, or Renmin, or democracy, we will uh, get to that in a minute. But first, right now, may I ask you another question? Um, it is widely known that in the early 1960s, millions of people died of hunger in the PRC caused by the party's uh, policy failure. Nonetheless, the PRC became 
a beacon to many transatlantic intellectuals at the time, including Joanne Robinson, Michel Foucault, and Jean-Paul Sartre, and uh, to leaders um, in uh, some African countries, such as Tanzania, who viewed Mao China as an ideal place and economic model for equality, happiness, and development. How come, Jiang? Could you explain this to our audience? To be fair, the West has always had its share of problems and its critics, and, and in many ways, the people who looked to China as a model were actually critiquing the countries they lived in, often France, but also the UK and the United States. And so China is sort of ought to be a sort of bouncing board or something for reflecting some of those critiques, which many of which are just uh, of, of their own societies. <clears throat> um, this, of course, is true. China seems to occupy a particular place in the European imagination, particularly perhaps the French, uh, because this happened, of course, in the 17th and 18th centuries as well, when um, you know China was seen as a model of um, you know rational bureaucratic government, in contrast to the absolutism and then the oh, absolutism of the, the monarchy, and then the absolutism of revolutionaries, and the rational bureaucratic model of China made a lot of sense. Now, people who've looked up people who look closely at how that model worked in in China might not have come away with quite as much admiration. Nevertheless, China is an inspiration, and, and rightly so in many ways, because there are big ideas. In China, people do play with big ideas and make big, bold experiments in government, and we, we need to acknowledge this. And the whole idea of meritocracy and bureaucracy really comes from China, it's borrowed really in, in and by, by, by Europe. <clears throat> that said, um, there's another problem, that is China then, particularly China now, is very secretive. I mean, it's very hard to find out what is actually going on. And so the idea that you can sort of, you know, rupture some of these illusions about Maoist China by, um, you know, alluding, pointing to the fact was very, very difficult. There were very, very few people able to access it. And those who were tended to be those who wanted to tell the story, you know, tell China's story well. Zhang Hao Mao's, you know, Zhang Hao Guoshi, Zhang Hao Zhongo Even so, I mean, it, <coughs> Assuming that all that information was to hand, I think still some, particularly in France, some of the critics would have been um, nevertheless overlooked um, some of the facts on the ground in China. I know this for a fact because um, a, a, a wonderful French scholar, a historian, Lucien Bianco, whom you would know, um, Lucien, who's a historian in the old tradition, you know, really deep in the archives, loves his facts, loves to address an argument based on evidence. Uh, he told me once that he had at the first stage been a roommate with Jacques Derrida and that um, Derrida's you know, fanciful understanding of China made no sense to Lucien. And when Lucien pointed out some of the facts, it made no difference. So I don't think I've misremembered that, but it seems to me when, when you have someone like Lucien Bianco, who can really tell you what's going on and you still ignore it, then there's something else going on there that I can't fully explain. Thank you so much, Jiang, for answering this question. For me, as a scholar, intellectual accountability and responsibility matters a great deal. In other words, 
I think uh, my standards are that public verbal and written judgments should at least aim to stand the test of time rather than blindly follow our own emotions at the moment. But uh, we could uh, chat about this on some other occasions later. Now, as you pointed out, local history of the PRC is overwritten by a uniform CCP version of national history in the Chinese historiography. You provided powerful fieldwork testimonies in your book on this topic. What are the mechanisms by which local histories are made to serve the CCP knowledge production of national history? Why are ordinary Chinese not allowed the opportunity to remember and reflect on their own individual and local recent past? Why is, for example, the extraordinary contribution of private Chinese citizens and civic groups from Taiwan in the relief work for the 2008 Wenchuan Sichuan earthquake doomed to oblivion in the CCP Memorial Museum where you visited? Yeah, this, this puzzles me too, Dong. It, it just seemed to me as a top-down institution, the Communist Party wants to tell the national story well. It doesn't have a real grip on the local story. And China's a mighty big country. It's not just Beijing. Um, you know, there are, what, 3,000, 3,000 to 4,000 counties, um, you know, averaging, what, half a million people each. Great cities, you know, many of them over 10 million people. <clears throat> but they are managed really with an iron fist from above. And that's just not a matter of, you know, communism or Leninism. It's a highly centralised uh, system of administration. Now, it's true, when it comes to the economy, a great deal of liberty was allowed to local areas, but that's not the case with telling China's story well or telling China's history. All must conform to the national narrative. That narrative changes over time, of course. You know, in Mao's day, there was one story of you know, revolutionary peasants and peasant uprisings. That all went by the wayside in the 1980s. The 90s, the national narrative changed dramatically. But either way, local communities had to comply with it. So all they can do is supply local illustrations of the national story, not actually local stories, you know, and then and tell them in a way um, that would engage local communities and, and draw enormous amount of attention internationally. I think this is a, an enormous pity, not just for China, but for the world, because China's history has so much to offer. And China's own stories are so manifest, many, so, so take so many forms that, that in a way, China's historical contribution to world, world knowledge is very weak. There's very little engagement because, because of that silence. Um, contrast India. We can't shut people up, you know. And so, and in a way, the Indian, the impact of Indian historians globally is, is extraordinary, you know, theoretically and methodologically and so on, uh, because they're, they just have this habit of, of telling local stories and telling them brilliantly and then drawing not just into national stories but into global and universal stories about class and gender and so on which in china are all reduced at the end of the day that's something that somebody in beijing wants to say now it's all very well to say that's how it works what enforces that well campaigns one way but i know we've been and i know you have working in china in history in the 80s and 90s a very very fruitful time 
archives were open, stories could be told, and the work done, and I, I dwell at length on this in one chapter, in Nanjing, on the Nanjing Massacre, was extraordinary. This, you know, the Nanjing Massacre, um, which is a truly brutal Japanese occupation in, in 1937, which continues, of course, through to 1945. Uh, but that story wasn't told, except, you know, very quietly, very locally. It wasn't allowed to be told nationally while Mao Zedong was alive for reasons which remain mysterious, except that it drew attention to the nationalists, which he never wanted to do. But, so after he died, um, the, the exploration of the Republican period and of the Nanjing, the, the anti-Japanese war and the role of the nationalists as patriots and so on was um, very, very lively and instructive. And we all went to China to learn. Well, you wouldn't go to learn now because it's just repeating old you know, paraphrasing old stories which no longer make much sense because that's shut down. And it shut down very recently, that open inquiry. And it shut down through a campaign against historical nihilism that's very much, it's closely associated with Xi Jinping and his administration and led by the Academy of Social Sciences, so, which I consider a great pity because it's a fantastic organisation, CAS. And it's a pity that its name should be sullied through association with a campaign to stop people <laughs> undertaking research in the social sciences. How absurd. Um, it's the opposite of the mission of a great national institution such as such as CAS. Um, yes, so a lot of people, local people have local stories. They want to be told, but it's highly unlikely they'll get to tell them. And if they did, we'd get a very different story coming out of China, and one which I think people around the world would find really attractive and do a lot to restore China's standing and reputation. It's not just Beijing. It's not just the Communist Party. It's a vast, diverse, sophisticated, you know, in many ways, wealthy, intelligent, permissive society. And people outside are losing sight of that because the story, that's not the story the party wants to tell. Yeah, indeed. Speaking of the people, shall we now go back to the issue of terminology? You incisively unpacked the use and misuses of key terms by the CCP, as well as some Chinese and foreign intellectuals. People, Renmin, democracy, Minzhu, seem part of the institutional effort to promote the Chinese model domestically and abroad. Perhaps you could comment on the recent official polemics, editorials, and academic articles that argue that the PRC represents they real democracy in the form of, um, quote, whole process democracy, how would you debunk the new nonsense and making black, white, or in Shakespeare's words, fair is foul and foul is fair, as characterized by many analysts? Well, I couldn't put it better than Shakespeare, Dong. I, I think you've summed it up pretty well there. We could just move on to the next question. No, no, seriously, what's at issue here is that in the West, the liberal West, democracy is in crisis. There's no doubt. And people in China, the government in China can see that. In the United States, in Britain, um, just this week, you know, there are really, really serious issues that liberal democracies need to face up to. They need to reform the way China reformed under Deng Xiaoping, not in the same way, but I mean, they need fire in the belly 
to actually you know, improve their practice. Otherwise, they will be subject to acute and valid criticism about the failings of democracy. But that's not re what really what's going on here. That's just one part of the story. This is also a justification for the way in which the party rules with an iron fist. What it's saying is you know, elections, a free press, independent courts, academic freedom, freedom of speech and religion and so on are just the, the sort of idle trappings of this democracy thing. They're not real. That China can have democracy with none of the above because it delivers. It delivers to the people, the renmin, um, which is a category of the party itself. It's, it doesn't actually refer to real real, real people, but we can leave that uh, aside for the moment. And there's no doubt that in the, um, if I could say in relation to COVID, you know, it's clear that the party has delivered, you know, through the hard work of these grassroots cadres who've had such a hard time. I mean, much as people don't like being locked down, nor do people like, you know, dying of COVID. And it's a balance there. And then China has found, Xi Jinping's administration has found one particular um, solution for this, which is worked up to date. It may not work much longer, but hey, you know, it, it delivered real outcomes. It prevented truly massive deaths on the scale of, say, Inu in the, or the United States. And so you have to say it's an efficient state, but that's got nothing to do with democracy. I mean, nobody had any doubt that the Chinese government, the government of China could lock people up in their homes if they needed to. That's not a mark of democracy. That's generally seen um, as, as a mark of an efficient, a bureaucratic authoritarian state. What it's got to do with democracy, I'm not sure. Which comes back to this question of Minzu, which we mentioned earlier. Um, it does seem to me that the idea that the, that the Communist Party uses, that the term for democracy, is associated with mastery and ownership and territory and pays very little regard to people and their rights. And I think um, you, can, you can say, oh, you're right, that China's got ownership and you know, the Communist Party has ownership and mastery and what have you of China, there's no doubt about that. But people don't have rights. And there's another translation of democracy. The standard word, in fact, until the Communists took power was minchanjui, which means people's rights. There's no sign of that in, in China today. Yang, to follow up, I think um, we could probably discuss uh, a few more phrases or popular uh, terms that are being um, created all the time. For example, some of them, um, like Zheteng. <laughs> this could be, I think, just expressed uh, pretty well in Chinese. And then Gejiucai. Um, and Tangping lying flat, and Da Bai, and uh, the uh, the last few weeks it's uh, run, you know, to run away or escape from <laughs> from the PRC. So I'm thinking of what you wrote on page two, quote, a party state of unprecedented size has been engaged in the attempt to consume the society and the economy over which it presides. End quote. It seems um, very often the CCP system keeps uh, um, ordinary people on their toes, including, of course, some of the grassroots um, cadres um, through the cadre system, various and constant uh, metric evaluations, regular political studies, and almost daily mass mobilization of controlled contests competitions. If one wants to have a bit of more to survive and sustain a family in addition to their meager salary, one would have to participate. 
in my experience, also university life is conducted like mass campaigns orchestrated by party branches and everything even at universities, arrives in the form of notification or decree or tongzhi without any public discussion or prior agreement. So um, what would you say about these? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'd like to break it up into a couple of bits, if I may, Dong. First off, I think you're describing Australian university life when you talk about instructions coming down the line in the form of Tongzhi. I mean, there's a certain corporatization that's happening in universities around the world. And we want to separate that from what, what's actually happening in China. Why it is that people want to lie flat? I mean, the fact that some um, people in an Australian university are issued instructions much the same way in a Chinese university, I regret to say, doesn't lead them to lying flat. Why does, what is this thing that's going on in China? I think it comes back to the Carter system itself. Let me explain why. Um, so under Mao, the Carter system, operated, the incentives that drove Carter's were really zealotry. You know, you're a Maoist, you loved Mao and you did what you had to do. And if you weren't, you were following Liu Xiaoqi, you were finished. I mean, you ended up out in the gulag, so to speak. The zealots survived. And then Deng Xiaoping comes in and it's, it's, it's a different set of metrics uh, are set up for the sort of cadre performance criteria. These include, um, you know, efficiency, being able to deliver local economic development, being able to keep population um, growth under control. And these were rewarded. And people who could meet those targets were rewarded within the Carter system, you know, better housing, perhaps a car, a little bit of money to spend on additional banquets and, and what have you. And of course, all sorts of benefits came along with the growth of the private economy, frankly, corruption on a vast, vast scale. And we now know that. I mean, Xi Jinping, to his credit, has largely exposed the scale of, of corruption, really quite massive, within the Carter system, where people were buying and selling positions because it was so lucrative to be, you know, just a prison officer. You know, you could buy a position as a prison officer because there was so much benefit to be made in selling sort of benefits to the families of prisoners and, and the whole the thing sort of stopped working as a functioning rational command system. Now, here's what we need to remember. The cadre system is a command system. I mean, the cadre, the word cadre, comes from the French, and it was originally meant an officer in a military organisation. When it's transferred in the Leninist, by Lenin and others in the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, to the civic infrastructure, it describes an officer of the higher level of the state. Um, you know, answering the commands of a higher level of the state within the civic system. So it's a command structure modelled, in a sense, on an army with many, many tiers and officers with various ranks and privileges uh, all the way up and down. Now, once you get corruption in there, it doesn't. It, the commands don't work. They don't get past level two or level three, what have you, to the people who are actually responsible for dealing with the real people on the ground. And I think Xi Jinping recognised this and, to his credit, did something about it. But given that in the old days it worked, the system worked through zealotry, and then it worked through these, you know, off-budget incentives, he's not offered any new incentives. He's not really given them the zealotry that would mobilise them. Nobody really loves Xi Jinping thought or Xi Jinping like they did Mao Zedong. And, and similarly, there are very few incentives to be found, you know, promoting market development simply because, um, well corruptions come to an end. So the first people to lie flat were cadres. I think we need to remember this. There was this inertia 
overcame the system from about 2013 onwards, 2014, 2015. And you find complaints uh, by cadres saying, look, we went out, we developed our economy, we kept the population under control, and now you're you know, throwing me out the door. What did I do wrong? Well, you were corrupt. Well, corruption, that's what it was all about. You know, that wheel oiled the wheels of the command structure. Well, it did as far as economic development goes, but not as far as command goes. So the first to lie flat, I would argue, were the cadres. And they didn't use words like tongue-ping. They just said things like, oh, that could be difficult, or yes and no, or you know, come back tomorrow. That is, decisions stop being taken. Anything to do with economic development, you know, it was too risky because you could be um, branded by your enemies, dragged off for corruption, and, and and this then gradually extended, I suspect, into into the broader community because Xi Jinping has extended his campaign against private businesses. Um, you know, he's, he's locked, he really has moved in on universities, made it very very difficult to do anything, anything international, anything substantial, exercise any initiative. So why not lie flat? I mean, it seems to me that the sensible way to go. Um, you know, if you want to survive now, you want a family, um, you want a comfortable married life, you're not going to go out of your way and take any risky decisions like innovate or set up a business or anything of that kind. Far too risky. Academic freedom has been discussed extensively, but the elephant in the room is independent thinking or independence of thought as a key component of democratic life. This is becoming more urgent for our field to publicize and debate this topic, given the fact that the Chinese academic inquiry has increasingly become subordinated to the CCP ideology, in some cases being given priority status and funding to serve the party's needs. This trend has also been silently making inroads into global academia, entering sponsored publications, joint research and academic debates. I wonder if you could share your overall take on this. Dong, I, I sense your concern and I share it. Uh, in 2016, at a time when I was the elected president of the Australian Academy of the Humanities, I gave the annual lecture on just this topic, <clears throat> how it is that um, restrictions on academic freedom under Xi Jinping's administration were potential, posed risks for international cooperation in higher education with China. At the time, that message was not welcome. Back in 2016, I think it's now more widely accepted. Um, it wasn't just that corruption was a problem. Corruption had always been a problem. Um, but, but rather, um, there was a co-option, in a sense, of universities outside China to sort of do, engage in message washing, sort of say what it was the Communist Party wanted the world to hear, but say it through local or indigenous voices in other places. And so we had, um, you know, people who were, some of them academics, some not, who were fated on tours of China, who would come back and make really very silly remarks about China of which they knew very little. I guess, in a way, this is, <laughs> to come to the heart of it, this is actually why I wrote the book. After 2016, when I saw that there was reluctance to accept the argument that I was mounting, I thought, well, I really need to say something about China. You know, if we have former ministers and you know senior public servants, um, very wealthy and influential businessmen making these claims about China, which I know not to be true, 
then really it's up to me to say what is true. So this is why I put out this, as I said, contestable book, Cardination, How China Became the Chinese Communist Party. The idea being to stimulate debate, not to silence it, not to end it. And if somebody can prove me wrong, I would be delighted. Thank you so much, Jiang. This actually also leads to your other new book, edited new book, published in this year, 2022, entitled Taking the Low Road, uh, China's Influence in Australian States and Territories. I find it very insightful and also urgently needed, I think, for many countries and, of course, for our own academics and colleagues to further pursue the research agenda. Zhang, we've taken a lot of your time. So may I ask, what are you working on these days? Doing that book you just mentioned, that edited volume, that was actually supported by the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung in Germany, from which I remain very, very grateful. I think there is concern, international concern, about local-to-local relations, and I've become keenly interested in this, both historically and as a contemporary issue. So for my next project, I'd really like to work with Taiwan and find out whether Taiwan's local-to-local relations have been affected as badly as its Taiwan-level relations, the central level relations with foreign countries. I'd like to find out what the impediments are to that and see whether it's possible perhaps to build closer links with Taiwan at the local level. That's my next plan. Excellent, Jiang. And thank you so much. And thank you, Jiang. Yeah, later I think perhaps we should have another chat on your new projects. So thank you so much and have a good day, Jiang. Thank you, Dong.